Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Dr. Mona is a bit of a superhero herself here because she was the first to link the water to high levels of lead in the children of Flint. The word lead when you're a physician or a pediatrician signals what in your brain? There is no safe level of lead. It impacts cognition, um, how children think, actually drops IQ levels. It impacts behavior, leading to things like developmental delays, and it has these life-altering consequences. Chris Downey had constructed the life he'd always wanted. An architect with a good job. That whole exterior. Happily married and coaching his 10-year-old son's little league. But then something awful happened. He went blind, and that threatened to end his career. Is that sufficiently different? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or did it? I'm a kid again. I'm relearning so much of architecture. It wasn't about what I'm missing in architecture. It was about what I had been missing in architecture. You're not laid back when you play tennis. No. No. I think I'm a very intense person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at maximum intensity. Tonight, we will try to explain how Rafa Nadal, the most intense tennis player of his generation, can come from a place like this, the sleepy, sunny island of Mallorca. Have you jumped off that? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times, yes. Oh, man. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, 
the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You may remember the pictures from the water crisis six years ago in Flint, Michigan. Hundreds of angry residents holding up bottles of rust-colored water and demanding answers. Months of protests were waved off by officials who denied anything was wrong. The turning point came when a local pediatrician found conclusive proof that the children of Flint were being exposed to high levels of lead in their water and prompted the state to declare an emergency. Now, that same doctor is working to solve a mystery that still worries parents in Flint. What lasting damage did the water do to their kids? As we first reported in March, her initial findings were worse than she feared. But we begin with the legacy of Flint's water crisis. Once a week, hundreds of cars line up for bottled water at the Greater Holy Temple Church of God in Flint. You know you're too old to be driving. Come on, where's your sticker, baby? Sandra Jones is in command. She is a pastor's wife. God bless with the voice of a four-star general. Let him go. Don't talk to him. Come around me. He's 90. Take his number. We're going to find a way to deliver to him. Jones keeps the cars moving. You almost got my toes. (laughs) And the water coming. Each family is allowed four cases of water. On this day, they gave away 36,000 bottles. It just strikes me. It's been five years and you're still doing this. Five years. And the thing about it is, it's not lightening up. I could see it if it was lightening up, but it isn't. It is not. The state stopped giving away bottled water two years ago because it said the water is safe. Sandra Jones relies on donations of water. What's it been like? It's been kind of hard. Larry Marshall was second in line. The widowed father of four got here at 5 a.m. He's been waiting five hours for water. Water should be a basic necessity that we shouldn't have to wait or stand in line for. You know, this is not a third world country, but we're living like that. Marshall, like many in Flint, still refuses to drink tap water. And if they come to you, the city or the state, and they say, you're you're drinking water safe, are you going to believe them? No. They lie so much, and we know they lie, and I, I... When they say something, it's like uh, talking to the wind, you know. I don't believe nothing they say. None of the politicians, none of them. Flint, once a prosperous hub of the American auto industry, was nearly bankrupt back in 2014. Officials hoped to save money by switching the city water source from the Great Lakes to the Flint River. Almost immediately, residents began noticing something wasn't right. The water was rust-colored, and many people had rashes. What do we want? We want What do we want? But Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality and the city insisted the water in Flint is safe. Later, a state investigation found those officials hid the fact that the river water was not treated with chemicals 
that would prevent the pipes from corroding. So for months, the water ate away at Flint's old pipes, releasing lead into residents' tap water. They were poisoned. I mean, they were poisoned by this water. They, they, they were all exposed to toxic water. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha is a pediatrician in Flint who her patients call Dr. Mona. Dr. Mona is a bit of a superhero herself here because she was the first to link the water to high levels of lead in the children of Flint. So within a few months of, of being on this water, General Motors, which was born in Flint and still has plants in Flint, noticed that this water, our drinking water, was corroding their engine parts. Let's just pause. Like, the drinking water was corroding engine parts. So they were allowed to go back to Great Lakes water. Didn't anybody at that point say, if it's corroding an engine, maybe this shouldn't be going into our bodies and to our kids? I mean, that should have been like fire alarm bells, like red flags. So what did it take before your, it, your eyes opened about this? Yeah, it, it, it was the word lead. Because the word lead, when you're a physician or a pediatrician, signals what in your brain? There is no safe level of lead. We're never supposed to expose a population or a child to lead because we can't do much about it. It is an irreversible neurotoxin. It attacks the core of what it means to be you. It impacts cognition, um, how children think, actually drops IQ levels. It impacts behavior, leading to things like developmental delays, and it has these life-altering consequences. In 2015, Dr. Mona and a colleague started digging through blood test records of 1,700 Flint children, including the kids she sees at the Hurley Children's Clinic. Ready? Okay. The nonprofit clinic serves most of Flint's kids. The city is 53% black and has one of the highest poverty rates in the country. So we looked at the children's blood blood levels before the water switch, and we compared them to children's blood blood levels after the water switch. And in the areas where the water lead levels were the highest, um, in that, those parts of the city, we saw the greatest increase in children's lead levels. Armed with the first medical evidence that kids were being exposed to lead from the water, Dr. Mona did something controversial. She quickly held a press conference to share the blood test study before other doctors reviewed her work. So it was a bit of an academic no-no, um, kind of a form of academic disobedience. Um, but I you knew that. I, I knew that, but, like, but there was no choice. There was no way I was going to wait um, to have this, this research vetted. Two weeks later, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder ordered the water switched back to the Great Lakes and declared a state of emergency. I say tonight, as I have before, I am sorry and I will fix it. But the damage was done. Dr. Mona estimates 14,000 kids in Flint under the age of six may have been exposed to lead in their water. I never should have had to do the research that literally used the blood of our children as detectors of environmental contamination. Three years after the crisis began, the percentage of third graders in Flint who passed Michigan's standardized literacy test dropped from 41% to 10%. I'm very concerned about my children. And not only my children, but I'm concerned about the children of Flint. Kenyatta Dotson is still fearful of the water, even though the state is spending more than $300 million to fix the water system. 
The city promised to replace all 12,000 supply lines that may have been contaminated with lead by last fall. Now they say the work won't be done until summer. Dotson says she and her daughters will continue to use bottled water for cooking and brushing their teeth. I need time to come back to a place where I feel whole again. You don't feel whole right now? Oh, no. Would this have happened in a rich white suburb? Maybe it would have happened in, in a rich white suburb. Would it have continued for as long as it has? I don't believe so. We found many parents in Flint still bathe their young children with bottled water, first warmed on the stove, then brought to the tub. When I'm in clinic, um, almost every day a mom asks me, is my kid going to be okay? So that's the number one kind of anxiety and, and How do you answer them. that? Uh, I, I sit down, I sometimes hold their hand, and I reassure my, my patients and their parents just as I would before the crisis to, to keep doing everything that you're supposed to be doing to promote your children's development. The Flint Registry is now live. In January of 2019, she launched the Flint Registry, the first comprehensive look at the thousands of kids exposed to lead in Flint. The goal of the federal and state-funded program is to track the health of those kids and get them the help they need. So today is um, the final day of his assessment. The registry refers hundreds of kids to specialists who conduct eight hours of neuropsychological assessments of their behavior and development. Dr. Mona shared her preliminary findings with 60 Minutes. Before the crisis, about 15% of the kids in Flint required special education services. But of the 174 children who went through the extensive neuro exams, specialists determined that 80% will require help for a language, learning, or intellectual disorder. What are you gonna do? There's not much we can do. So there's no magic pill, there's no antidote, there's no cure. We can't take away this exposure. But incredible science has taught us that there's a lot that we can do to promote the health and development of children. And that's exactly what we're doing. Through the registry, already 2,000 Flint children who are exposed to lead have been connected to services such as speech and occupational therapy, which some may need for the rest of their lives. But we also realized that our research, our science, this data and facts was also an underestimation of the exposure. Why underestimated? Because we were looking at blood lead data done as part of these surveillance programs, which are done at the ages of, of one and two. Lead and water impacts a younger age group. Um, it impacts the unborn. To determine that impact, Dr. Mona turned to a novel technique developed by Dr. Manish Arora at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. He examines baby teeth. Baby teeth begin to grow in utero. Just like growth rings in trees, every day a tooth forms a ring. And anything that we're exposed to in our diet, what we eat, what we breathe, what we drink, gets trapped in those growth rings. A laser cuts through the tooth to analyze whether lead is embedded in the growth rings of teeth. Dr. Mona has sent teeth from 49 Flint kids to be analyzed. This was a scan on the tooth of a child who was six months old when the water source switched in Flint. As we hit that six-month mark where oh the water, water supply was changed, you can, see how, you can see how the lead levels go up and then they just keep, keep going up 
as more and more lips entering the body. It shoots straight up. Wow. For the first time, researchers can pinpoint to the day, even before birth, when a child was exposed to lead from the water and at what levels. Those early years are a critical time for brain development. You're taking giant steps. As we were following Dr. Mona's work in Flint, another American city was forced to hand out cases of water. Testing on the drinking water in Newark, New Jersey, found lead levels four times higher than the federal limit. In some places, higher than Flint. Newark officials were warned about its water more than two years ago. Newark, New Jersey is like living Flint all over again. If we cannot guarantee that all kids get access to safe drinking water, not just privileged kids, but all kids have access to safe drinking water, um, that's just one issue. Like, who are we? This is not isolated to Flint. This is an everywhere story. This is an America story. We made another visit to Flint to check in with Sandra Jones. Okay, let's move them out. Y'all moving too slow. Let's move them out. Y'all need to keep up with him. That's it. That's the way you do that. She was still in command despite temperatures in the single digits. Come on, hop out. Hundreds in Flint are still coming to her church parking lot for their weekly supply of water, more than five years after the crisis began. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. At age 45, Chris Downey had pretty much constructed the life he'd always wanted. An architect with a good job at a small housing firm outside San Francisco, he was happily married with a 10-year-old son. He was an assistant Little League coach, an avid cyclist. And then doctors discovered a tumor in his brain. He had surgery, and the tumor was safely gone, but Downey was left completely blind. As we first reported in 2019, what he has done in the decades since losing his sight as a person and as an architect can only be described as a different kind of vision. Several mornings a week as the sun rises over the Oakland estuary in California, an amateur rowing team works the water. It's hard to tell which one of them is blind, and Chris Downey thinks that's just fine. It's really exciting to be in a sport where nobody looks in the direction they're going. You're faced this way in the boat, and you're going that way. So, okay, even Steven. <laughs> we were just talking about that whole exterior. It's not exactly even Steven so in this design meeting. Uh, where Downey is collaborating with sighted architects on a new hospital building. Under the canopy where you can have down lights. But he hasn't let that stop him. Here you are in a profession that basically requires you to read, read designs and draw designs. You must have thought in your head, that is insurmountable. No. You never thought, I never thought, you never thought the word insurmountable. Lots of people, friends that were architects, and anybody else would say, oh my God, it's the worst thing imaginable.
to be an architect and to lose your sight. I can't imagine anything worse. But I quickly came to realize that the creative process is an intellectual process. It's how you think. So I just needed new tools. New tools? Downey found a printer that could emboss architectural drawings so that he could read and understand through touch. They look like normal prints, normal drawings on the computer, but then they just come out in tactile form. So it is like Braille, isn't it? Right. And he came up with a way to sketch his ideas onto the plans using a simple children's toy, malleable wax sticks that he shapes to show his modifications to others. And he says something surprising started to happen. He could no longer see buildings and spaces, but he began hearing them. The sounds, the textures, and the sound changes because there's a canopy overhead. You can sense that we're under a canopy? Yes. It's all a matter of how the sound works from the tip of the cane. I was fascinated walking through buildings that I knew sighted, but I was experiencing them in a different way. I was hearing the architecture. I was feeling the space. It sounds as if you began almost enjoying, in a way, being the blind architect. Sort of this, this excitement of, I'm a kid again. I'm, I'm relearning so much of architecture. It wasn't about what I'm missing in architecture. It's what, it was about what I had been missing in architecture. Is that sufficiently different? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Chris Downey's upbeat attitude doesn't mean that he didn't go through one of the most frightening experiences imaginable and struggle. He and his wife, Rosa, were living in this same home with their son, Renzo, then 10, when Downey first noticed a problem while playing catch with Renzo. The ball kept coming in and out of sight. The cause turned out to be a tumor near his optic nerve. Surgery to remove it lasted nine and a half hours. He says his surgeon had told him there was a slight risk of total sight loss, but that he'd never had it happen. When he first came out of surgery, he was able to see. But then things started to go wrong. The next day, half his field of vision disappeared. And then... The next time I woke up, it was uh, all gone. It was just black. Complete and total darkness. No light, you can't see anything. It's dark. It's all dark. After days of frantic testing, a surgeon told him it was permanent, irreversible, and sent in a social worker. She said, oh, and I see from your chart you're you're an architect, so we can talk about career alternatives. Career alternatives? Yeah. Right away. And been told I was officially blind for 24 hours. And she's saying you can't be an architect And she is saying we can talk about career alternatives. I felt like these walls were being built up around me, just like, yeah, you're getting boxed in. Alone that night in his room, Downey did some serious thinking about his son and about his own father, who had died from complications after surgery when Downey was seven years old. I could quickly appreciate the wonder, the, just the joy of, I'm still here. It was actually joy? Yeah. It's like, I'm still here with my family. My son still has his dad. You know, your eyes so, are tearing up. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's, uh, I always have a hard time talking through that. He knew but. that how he handled this would send a strong message to Renzo. 
I had been talking with him about the need to really apply himself. At the age of 10, it's that point where if you want something, you really have to work at it. And here I am, facing this great challenge. So motivated to set an example, he headed back to work only one month later. This was the most healthy thing about Chris. Brian Bashan is executive director of the nonprofit Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired in San Francisco and is blind himself. He waited a few days until the stitches were out of his skull and 30 days after brain surgery, he was back in the office thinking, okay, there's got to be a way to figure this out and I'm going to figure it out. Bashan's organization, The Lighthouse, helps people new to vision loss learn how to figure things out. Let's try the first line. When someone becomes blind, the odds are 99% they've never met another blind person. Is that right? Yeah, that really is true. Blind people need those role models, how to be blind, how to hold down a job, how to live an independent life. Specifically, how to work in the kitchen safely. Good morning. How to navigate public transportation. How to use screen reading software to listen to emails as quickly as the rest of us read them. Did you understand that? Yes. No. And most critically, how to get around in the world alone. Downey learned that at the lighthouse. When you first crossed a big street like this huh. on your own, yeah. Is it terrifying? That is absolutely terrifying. I can imagine. <laughs> I can totally imagine. I remember that day that uh, stepping off the curb, you would have thought I was stepping into raging waters. Ah, take a deep breath and go for it. you got to push through it. Within a few months, he was traveling the streets on his own and getting back to normalcy with his son. The first Father's Day came up. Rosa was like, so what do you want to do? You want to go on a picnic, go on a nice lunch? I want to play baseball <laughs> with Renzo. And Renzo was like, he popped up. I could just, I could feel him like jump to the edge of his chair. Baseball, you want to play baseball? So dad would throw to me and I'd play like I was playing first base. How could he throw the ball to you? I'd just call out, I'm over here. Yeah, there you go. And he'd so, point and I'd say, yeah, that's right. And then he'd throw it at me. But that's something I really loved about our relationship. He quickly... Yeah was looking for possibilities. He wasn't seeing you can't do that. He was like, well, why not? All right, here we go. Downey seems to have a knack for finding windows when doors slam shut. Just nine months after going blind, the recession hit, and he lost his job. But he got word that a nearby firm was designing a rehabilitation center for veterans with sight loss. They were eager to meet a blind architect. What are the chances? You had to believe that God's hand came down. It took my disability and turned it upside down. All of a sudden, it defined unique, unusual value that virtually nobody else had to offer. Nobody? Yeah. Starting with that job, Downey developed a specialty, making spaces accessible to the blind. He helped design a new eye center at Duke University Hospital, consulted on a job for Microsoft, and signed on to help the visually impaired find their way in San Francisco's new and much-delayed four-block-long Transbay Transit Center, which we visited during construction. If you're blind, you don't drive, all right? <laughs> you don't like it when we drive. So, you know, we're committed transit users. So the question was, 
how on earth do you navigate this size of facility if you're blind? His solution? Grooves set into the concrete running the entire length of the platform. Now we'll just follow this, following those grooves. With a subtle change from smooth to textured concrete to signal where to turn to get to the escalators. Would you like to give it a try? Okay. I know to go straight because of this line, and I feel, oh, my. Oh, my. So it's pretty obvious. I can hear the difference from here. It's something sighted people may never notice, and that's precisely the point. Downey believes in what's called universal design that accommodates people with disabilities but is just as appealing to people without them. It's the approach he used for his biggest project yet, consulting on the total renovation of a new three-story office space for his old training ground, the Lighthouse for the Blind. Coming into blindness need not be some dreary social service experience, but rather more like coming into an Apple store, thinking that there might be something fun around the corner. One of Downey's ideas was to break through and link the three floors with an internal staircase that sighted people can see and the blind can hear. In blindness, it's so wonderful to be on the ninth floor and hear a burst of laughter up on the 11th floor or to hear somebody playing the piano on the 10th floor. For the hallways, Downey chose polished concrete because of the acoustics. I can hear the special tap of somebody's cane or the click of a guide dog's toenails. Click of a a dog's toenails? Yeah. Well, is that good or bad? That's great. It's like you're seeing somebody coming down the hall. I know the sound of individual people who work here by the way they use their cane or the kind of walk they have. You can really distinguish between people by how they tap their cane. Absolutely. If you hadn't had Chris working on this building... A blind architect. It wouldn't have been as rich or so subtle, for sure. Spring 2018 marked the 10-year anniversary of Downey losing his sight. So what did he do? He threw a party, a fundraiser for the Lighthouse, where he's been student, architect, and now president of the board. Maybe a slightly bizarre thing, celebrating my... 10-year blind birthday. But when you're 55 and you have a chance to be 10 again, you take it. I get the feeling that you actually think you're a better architect today. I'm absolutely convinced I'm a better architect today than I was sighted. If you could see tomorrow, would you still want to be able to feel the design? If I were to get my sight back, it would be... I don't know. I would be afraid that I'd I'd sort of lose what I've really been working on. I I don't really think about having my sight restored. There's be some logistical liberation to it, but will it make my life better? I, I don't think so. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
not for the global pandemic, this would have marked the middle weekend of Wimbledon, the peak of the tennis season. It might also have provided Rafael Nadal, now 34, a chance to eclipse Roger Federer for most major singles titles in history. Whenever it is Nadal plays next, he'll be trying to add to his credentials as the greatest player of all time. But Nadal doesn't play tennis so much as he works it, blistering the ball with annihilating force, lacing it with somersaulting topspin, and imposing his will on the opponent. His relentless approach is strikingly effective, and as we first told you last January, strikingly at odds with the vibe on the Spanish island where he was born, lives now, and vows never to leave. Nadal invited us to his hometown last December, during what passes for an off-season in tennis, five weeks most players use to rest up before the start of a new season. Most players, but not Rafa Nadal. We found him blasting away at practice every morning, deploying his lefty forehand and double-fisted backhand, every bit as dialed in as he is during his matches. Such is his intensity, Nadal requires two sparring partners. His main coach, Carlos Moya, was once the world's number one ranked player himself. And even he struggled. That was easy, Nadal joked. Hola. Good to see you. Good to see you. Full disclosure, I've covered Nadal for 15 years on the pro tennis tour, but this was our first extended on-camera interview. He's fluent in English, but expresses himself more freely in Spanish. You are not laid back when you play tennis. No. No. I think I'm a very intense person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at maximum intensity. This is how I feel it. In 2019, the world felt it perhaps the best six-month stretch of Nadal's career, even by his dizzyingly high standards. In June, he won the French Open. Of course he did. It was his 12th title on the red clay of Paris. More than any player in history has won any major. In September in New York, he reeled off the shot of the year. Not over the net, but around it. And yes, this is legal on his way to winning the U.S. Open for a fourth time. By the time he carried Spain to a Davis Cup title, his fifth turn closing out the season on top. As one observer put it, even at this stage of his career, Nadal plays like he's broke. So what hard-charging corner of Spain, what hive of cutthroat ambition would produce this kind of ruthless competitor? Actually, it's Mallorca the largest of Spain's Balearic Islands. A patchwork of turquoise coves, mountain ranges, rolling meadows, Mallorca floats comfortably in the Mediterranean. Think of it as something akin to a tennis ball Spain volleyed in the direction of Italy. The usual historical suspects, Carthaginians, Romans, and Moors, all left their mark here. How many generations of Nadals have been on this island? Mm. Bastantes. Many. No pocas. Quite a few. What is it like to you coming back to Mallorca after spending time on the road? For me, coming back to Mallorca means coming back to a normal life. And normal life makes me happy. I'm not just Rafa Nadal, the tennis player. I become Rafa Nadal, the human being again. Nadal is so attached to the place that when floods ravaged Mallorca in 2018, he put down his racket, grabbed a broom, and became just another volunteer. The island raised him. So, too, did his parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts, 
three generations of Nadals living together, quite literally on top of each other, in this apartment block in the small town of Manacor. His uncle, Miguel Angel, played professional soccer and gave Rafa his first glimpse of life under stadium lights. He always managed to have a peaceful, normal life, close to his family. And for me, that was a very good example. But it was another uncle, Tony Nadal, then a local tennis instructor, who recognized Rafa's talent. Normally, when you throw the ball to most kids, they wait for the ball to come to them. But when he was three years old, he went straight for it. There were no perks to being the instructor's nephew. Quite the opposite. Tony singled him out, making him pick up balls and sweep the court after practice. How hard were you on him? It was hard. You were? I wanted to prepare my nephew for the future, and I thought the future will be very difficult. You say you were tough. Were you too tough? Sometimes. Still, it was out of the question that Rafa would leave home and his uncle's coaching to attend an academy. To this day, the Nadal family operates as a tightly knit clan. They attend Rafa's big matches together. They toast his successes together. And they had cause to celebrate right from the start. Nadal was an instant phenom. In 2005, the week he turned 19, he won his first French Open. His stubborn refusal to surrender and the spin he can generate with a flick of the wrist have always made him near unbeatable on clay courts. And yet the signature moment of Nadal's entire career came on grass. Wimbledon. In 2007, Nadal was close to dethroning the sports reigning king, Roger Federer, to win the tournament for the first time. But then, in keeping with an unfortunate theme of Nadal's career, his body betrayed him. A knee injury this time. Do you remember how low you were after that 2007 Wimbledon final? I was sad and I was angry with myself because I wasn't able to endure mentally the pain, the suffering, and the tension. Nadal got another shot the following year in what's been called the greatest match ever played. He pulled ahead early, but Federer stormed back. During a rain delay, Rafa conferred with his uncle. I'm telling you, at that point, I thought Rafael was more likely to lose than to win. And then he looked up at me and said, relax, I'm not going to lose this match. Maybe Federer will win, but I'm not going to lose. Winning Wimbledon was a dream. And beating Roger and the way I won, it's something I will never forget. Nadal didn't just overcome Federer, he confronted another persistent nemesis, the doubt in his head. You once said to me, if I don't feel doubt, I'm going to be in trouble. Doubt is very important to my success. What do you mean by that? If you don't have doubt, it probably means that you're being arrogant. Most athletes might think the exact opposite, that, that doubts are bad. You're, you're saying doubts are almost a, a power, a strength. I think so, yes. I think it's good for me because then I feel alert. Because tennis is a sport where things can change very quickly. That's the great beauty of our sport. A great beauty of Nadal, for all his focus and aggression, he's also unfailingly sporting, which sometimes distinguishes him from colleagues. You haven't broken too many rackets in competition, have you? How many? Do you know the total? 
Yes, C. What is it? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Never broken a racket. Uh-uh. What, what, what is that about? Mi familia me, My family, me they wouldn't have allowed me to break a racket. For me, raqueta, breaking a racket means I'm not in control of my emotions. In full control of his emotions, at least until the last point, he's amassed 19 majors, only one behind Roger Federer's record of 20. But in this unrivaled sports rivalry, Nadal leads the head-to-head -head matchups 24 to 16. You ever done a long interview and not been asked about Roger Federer? <laughs> Does that bother you? No. Encantado. I'd be delighted. A, a rival, a colleague, a friend. What, what is your relationship? Creo que un poco de todo. I think it's a little bit of everything. Creo que hemos tenido una... We've had a very intense rivalry throughout our careers, but it's been a very healthy rivalry. Sana, una rival. An elegant, respectful rivalry. We've also reached a stage in our lives where we are able to appreciate that it's not just about winning. Nadal did admit to being jealous of Federer in one respect. Do you ever envy the, the health of your rivals? Sí. <laughs> yes, uh, sometimes I do. It's true that my rivals have faced fewer injuries than I've had to face. One of the theories with your injuries is that you practice and play with so much intensity that it, it takes a physical price. Is, is that something you agree with? No, or no, lo sé. no, or I don't know. I was told that for many years. I was told that because of the way I play, I would never have a very long career. But hey, I'm still here. For this, the final set of Nadal's career, Uncle Tony has stepped aside, and Rafa has a new voice in his ear. Carlos Moya is, naturally, a fellow Mallorcan. What percent of his intensity did you have when you were a player? 10%. 10% is intense as Rafa Nadal. And yet you come from the same place. Yeah, he's a different one, not me. Uh, here in Mallorca, we he, are like he's this. He's the exception. Yeah, he's the exception, yeah. Nadal turned his sleepy hometown of Monacor into a worldwide tennis destination. The Rafa Nadal Academy is a sprawling complex for enthusiasts and aspiring pros. When we asked Nadal if he ever considered moving his operation, as if to emphasize the point, he switched to no. English to answer. Honestly, not. A lot of people does. Uh, because of taxes. Not or, for you. For me, it was difficult to take that decision because I have all the people that I love here and I will win much more money if I move to another place. But moving to another place, if I'm not happy, should could be very, very expensive. <laughs> Last October, Nadal married his longtime girlfriend, Maria Francisca Perello. Yep, she's my orkin too. She helps run Nadal's charitable foundation and tends to avoid the public eye though we found them together one night hosting a group of donors. How did you ask her to marry you? <laughs> After 15 years, we don't need to talk problems. much. <laughs> Just what we have to do. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> well, here we are. <laughs> Nadal took us to a plot of land he bought recently where he and his wife will eventually break ground on a new family home. He told us he'd planned to have kids by now. Then again, he also thought he'd be off the tour by now. This is the port of Manacor. My parents living there. Oh, your, pa your parents live across the bay? Yeah, other side. And yeah, it's good because I, I have the boat too, very close. So that helps because... Oh, you, you keep a boat here? Yeah. Yeah, so in 30 minutes I am in the boat. <laughs> Three minutes you're in the boat and you're out, out in the Mediterranean exactly. fishing. Exactly. <laughs> Only one problem with this spot. The problem here is the, the kids during the summer, right. they go there, they jump. Oh, <laughs> and because, the, because there is nobody in the house, they 
come up and they come back. You know, they they come from inside oh. the property. So this is a hangout for Mallorca because because <laughs> yeah. Rafa's away playing tennis. So why don't we go out to his property and jump off his cliff? Yeah, that's 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 true. Have you, have you jumped off that? Yeah, a yeah. couple of times. Yes. Maybe it was the effects of being back home. Maybe it's because he is back on top. But we found Rafael Nadal ready to take the measure of his entire surpassing career. You've had some incredible victories and you've had some gutting losses. What is more intense, the joy of winning or the pain of losing? Depends on the moment. Unfortunately, in life, more often we remember the negative things because they have a greater impact on us. In tennis, it's a little different, no? I think over my career that I have been happier with my victories than I have been upset with my defeats. I think. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Regular viewers may have noticed that in this time of pandemic and protest for racial justice, 60 Minutes has continued to broadcast new stories through June. We hope you have found them illuminating and thought-provoking. But now, it's time to begin reporting for next season, our 53rd, and spend time with our families. As we do each summer, we have prepared updates of some of our favorite stories to broadcast these next few weeks. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.